Good morning. It's good to see you all out here today. I'm glad it's not raining. I was afraid that would happen. Um, so I'm wondering if you noticed something lately. I've, I've noticed this, particularly when I look on Facebook, but despite all the COVID things going on and all the restrictions, there's been weddings happening, right? And I think that's really cool. We just had, you know, Allison got married, Tanya's getting married tomorrow. And I think it's so awesome to have something positive to celebrate in the times that we're going through. In less than two months from now, Steve and I are actually having our own wedding anniversary. And I remember when we were newly married and hearing about someone who was married for 25 years. Like, what? That's just insane. Here we are on the verge of 31. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like 31. It goes so fast. Um, but anyway, on our 15th wedding anniversary, Steve surprised me by doing a marriage wedding vow renewal ceremony. And it was amazing. He uh, set up all the things that we did, like we got, went to the same church where we had gotten married at. We even had the reception at the same reception hall afterwards. And during the ceremony, we repeated many of the promises we had made when we were first married, that we would continue our commitment to love and cherish one another, that we would support one another in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer. All those great vows were repeated at our 15th anniversary. In our passage today, it describes an event at the end of Joshua that's similar to a vow renewal ceremony. So kind of keep that image in mind as we, we talk about this. Uh, speaking of weddings, anybody here who's gotten married, has anyone given you a gift that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, printed on it somewhere? Like a plaque or a mug or something like that. So that's a very popular thing to give when somebody gets married, right? Because you want to say, we're going to build our lives together, and hopefully we'll be focused on love and service for the Lord. So the passage we're looking at today is the very last chapter in Joshua, chapter 24. And we are at a point, we're kind of fast-forwarding, because they just had their very first battle and conquered Jericho, right? So now <laughs> we're at the end, and the promised land is settled. The promised land has been divided for the 12 tribes. Joshua has seen amazing things throughout this time period. He's seen many battles that have been fought and won. He's seen God's miraculous intervention many times. To name a few, we saw the, you know, the walls of Jericho falling down. Did you know that God also made the sun stand still so that he could finish one of their battles and have victory? He also sent hail one time on their enemies and pummeled them and killed them. <laughs> so God these, did these miraculous things. Joshua also witnessed disobedience and unfaithfulness. If you just look at chapter 7, you can read all about Achan's sin and how sad that was. So Joshua has seen it all. He's seen the successes that come when people walk in obedience to the Lord. He's also seen the failures and the consequences that can come as well when people choose not to. So here Joshua is. He's about to die, and he wants to address all the Israelites one more time. And at the end of life, you're going to be really laser-focused, right, on what's most important. So he's burdened to challenge the people one more time to remain faithful to God in his ways. Don't get lax in your devotion to God. Just because the promised land is settled, you're experiencing peace right now. Don't get lax in following the Lord. So at this time, commentators estimate that when all these people were gathered in Joshua 24, there's probably about 2 million people. And the place of where this happened is very noteworthy. It's in a place called Shechem. Shechem was a town in the very in the heart of the Promised Land, which was great. It was a centralized place. It made it more easy for people to come and gather and hear what Joshua had to say to them. The place of 
Shechem is, is historically significant. Do you remember the story of Abraham? When God said, Abraham, I want you to get up, get your family, and go to a, place, a land that I will show you. He had no idea where he was going. Well, you know where he eventually landed? In Shechem. Okay? So when Abraham arrived in Canaan, he, God appeared to him at Shechem. And this is what God told him, Genesis 12, verses 6 to 7. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree at Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So this was the land of the Canaanites, has not yet become the promised land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So I just think it's so interesting. So Josh was standing in the very place that God had promised to give them. So think about that time period. So there was about, you know, after Abraham had gone to the promised land and to, to Shechem and got this promise from the Lord, about 200 years passed, and then, you know, the family expanded, and they all ended up moving to Egypt because of the famine. That was, and then followed by another 400 years of slavery. And then if you combine their time in the, in the wilderness with the time it took to settle the promised land, that was another 100 years. So if you add all that up together, that's 700 years. So 700 years prior, God said, I'm going to give you this land. And here Joshua is at this very same place God promised that, with two million people in the promised land having it already settled. So just amazing that God is a promise keeper. And that was one of the themes of this series. He kept his promise. It wasn't in Abraham's lifetime. It wasn't even close to Abraham's lifetime. It was 700 years later. But God is a promise keeper, and we want to emphasize that today. So in short, Joshua gathered all the people for his farewell address to them in the very same place that he had promised 700 years ago to Abraham to give him. So let's look at our key verses for today. We're going to focus on two verses from Joshua 24, 14, and 15. It says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served before the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So those who are familiar with that last phrase now are getting some context of where that's coming from. Joshua 24 is actually an example of what's called a suzerainty treaty, which was a, a, a very common agreement in that time, which would be between a king and his vassals. For the Israelites, though, this represented no ordinary agreement. It was a holy covenant between the Lord God Almighty and his treasured people. We don't have time to read the whole chapter of um, Joshua 24, but verse 2 says, if you're able to look at that, the beginning says, Joshua said, this is when he's beginning his farewell address, Joshua says to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And then from verse 2 to 13, Joshua proceeds to speak on God's behalf. And he uses first pronouns. It says, I have brought you um, into the promised land. I called Abraham to Canaan. I was with you in the wilderness. I helped you settle the promised land. That's basically how it goes. But then a shift happens in verse 14, which again is our verse today. Um, so, jo so Joshua just finished detailing all that God had done for them, how God had kept his side of this covenant. So the shift is now Joshua challenging the people, saying, it's time for you Israelites to keep your side of the covenant. How are you going to respond to God's gracious provisions for you? 
So he's basically saying, based on all that God just reminded you of regarding the history of the people, verse 14, based on all of that, now, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. And I like how the message puts this part of 14. It says, so now fear God and worship him in total commitment. Joshua was afraid at this point that the people had divided hearts, hearts they were not fully fixed on the Lord. And how do we know that? Because if you look at this verse, right after it says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, what's the very next thing he says? Throw away your idols, right? Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So it's really sad, despite God's amazing faithfulness to his people, the miraculous way he gave them the promised land, they're still clinging to foreign gods. On the one hand, they want God's blessings and abundance, right? But on the other hand, they're clinging to these idols thinking they could give them something. And when you have two religions that you're trying to do at the same time, it's called syncretism. And Joshua is saying, no, 100% pure, follow after the Lord. You must throw away these idols. So you have to say, well, what did idolatry look like at this time? Because we're familiar with kind of what the idolatry looked like during the period of the kings. But what did the idolatry look like when they were settled at the end of the, uh, you know, at the, end of the time of being settled in the promised land? It's hard to believe, but the commentators are in agreement that they actually had physical idols in their possession. Um, if you look, if, if you're able to look on your own, the Joshua 24, 23, it says yet again, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. There were foreign gods among the people, which is hard to believe, and yield your hearts to the Lord. So this verse implies that the Israelites were concealing their practice of idolatry. They had hidden gods in their homes. So while they believed there was no public form of idolatry, people were still holding on to these physical idols in their homes, and they were privately worshiping them. So who were these gods that the Israelites we're still holding on to. In our two verses today, they list three different kinds of foreign gods, if you will. Verse 14 says, the gods beyond the river. So that refers to the gods that were present in the land when Abraham had left his hometown and entered Canaan. So we got the gods beyond the river. Then verse 15 said the gods in Egypt. And we've all heard about the different gods that people in Egypt used to worship. And then verse 14 says, the gods of the Amorites. And in this case, Amorites is more a general term, meaning the, the gods of all the people who, the foreign nations who are around you in the promised land. So in other words, Joshua's pointing out that idolatry has been a problem for these past 700 years, from the time of Abraham, from the time when you were in Egypt, and even now. So let's continue on to verse four, uh, 15. After telling them to throw away their foreign gods, Joshua now challenges the people to state their intentions. Who are you going to follow? He says in 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And that, that phrase really stuck out to me. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you. He was questioning their heart's desires to follow God. He was trying to have the people ask themselves, do I desire to follow God? Or is following God unattractive? Is it unappealing? One commentator put it this way. Uh, was serving the Lord irksome and tires, troublesome? Was it a burden, a weariness, not a pleasure or delight? 
that's such a sad description of a weak relationship with God. Like you might say, yeah, I'm kind of following God, but it's undesirable. So Joshua gives the command. This is an imperative. Choose. Serving God in faithfulness can only result from a personal decision. It's a choice to say no to all other gods and yes to the only true God. Like we just sang, you have no rival, you have no ego. That's the choice. I make a choice to believe that. And these people, they had total freedom over whom they could choose. Joshua wasn't coercing anybody. He was presenting them with a choice. And the choice that he gave them was very distinct, and it was, it was like a binary choice. It was just this or that. There was nothing in between. There was no syncretism allowed. He said uh, syncretism was abhorrent to the Lord. And he, he made it very clear, you cannot remain neutral here. You need to choose who you're going to follow. And Joshua said, as for me and my household, we're going to follow the Lord. So he's essentially implying that it, even if everyone else chose to follow other gods, me and my house will follow the Lord. Even if he gets mocked for his faith, me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Even if the current trend is, is going elsewhere, we will continue to choose to follow the Lord. And because he made a decision from the very beginning to follow the Lord, we were able to see how he was steadfast through his whole life, and he's in the same place as far as he's still true, 100% to his Lord. And now, because he's lived such a life, he has the spiritual authority to challenge the people before him with the same decision. At the end of his life, he has no regrets, and he has zero doubt about God's faithfulness to his children who follow wholeheartedly after him. This idea of choosing clearly brings us to the heart of the gospel, right? Let's remember, there's two million people gathered here, right? It's easy to think, okay, just kind of this blob of people, and they're all kind of monolithic, they're all kind of the same, but that's not true. So you have to think about the time, okay? So if Joshua's about mid-60s when he entered the Promised Land, and he's given this farewell address um, right before he dies at 110 years old. So it took, this is about 50 years after they first entered the Promised Land, and Joshua's gathering the people before him. So first, there's going to be a mix of ages, right? You're going to have children and teenagers, young adults, middle-aged, and elderly. And then secondly, you're going to have a mix of people's spiritual commitments. You're going to have some who are secretly worshiping idols. You're going to have some who have stayed true and steadfast and faithful to the Lord. And Joshua asks each one of those people, whom will you serve? And this is the most important question any of us will answer in our lives. The most important choice of eternal consequence as one commentator put it, your father can't make that choice for you, your mother can't make it for you, your children can't make it for you. This is where you must choose for yourself. Joshua knew that he could not choose for the tribes of Israel. They must choose for themselves. The greatest battles of life must be fought alone. This is a decision that you have to make alone. So as I said, some of the crowd were young. They were children, young adults, teenagers. This literally may be the first time that someone directly challenged him and said, who are you going to serve? Well, is it going to be to the gods that we just conquered? Is it going to be to the idols that people are hiding in their midst? Or are you going to serve the one true God? Even if your parents don't follow him, even if your household doesn't follow him, what will you do? And maybe today this is the first time you've heard this clear, distinct choice of whom you're going to follow. And I want to be clear about something. The choice is not really, am I going to follow God or not follow God? 
The choice is, will I follow the one true God, or am I going to follow some other God? Our hearts will follow something. So the question is, who are you going to choose to follow? And there's no room in your heart for two gods. I love the immediacy that's expressed in these verses. It says, choose when? Today, right? Choose today whom you will serve. Not tomorrow, not sometime in the future, but today. And I want to point out 2 Corinthians 6.2 has a similar idea of the immediacy of making a decision about your salvation. It says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, it says, now is the day of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Do you remember the parable Jesus told? It's in, found in Luke 12. But it was about this man who kept building bigger and bigger barns, right? He got more and more. He was harvesting his crops. I built another bigger barn, bigger barn. And he's like, oh, finally I can rest. Well, what happened to him? The very next day, he died, right? And one of the points of that parable is Jesus pointing out how fleeting life is, that there is no guarantee you'll even have a tomorrow. So the time to choose is now. The time to choose Jesus and the amazing work on the cross that he accomplished for us. It's time to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, that he's the only means of forgiveness for our sins, He's the only way we can renew a broken heart, and he's the only one who can give us the gift of eternal life. And if you decide not to receive that gift from him, you are by default making this decision against him. There's just no neutral ground. For some in Joshua 24, the call for them to commit to the Lord is not a new calling, right? I said there were some middle-aged and older people there. Um, and they were likely with Josh. Some of them were with Joshua when he entered. And, and now they are at the end of their life. So Joshua's also challenging them and saying, where do you stand with the Lord? Do you still want to follow him? Do you need to recommit your lives with the Lord? Sometimes choosing God can feel like a very lonely place. You guys ever feel that way when you choose to stand up for the Lord and choose to stand for your faith? It can feel very lonely. Sometimes it feels like you're the only one standing strong. And it makes me think of the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you're familiar with it, I don't have time to go into all of that. Look at 1 Kings 18. It's an amazing story. But Elijah's on one side, and you got the prophets of Baal, false idols, on the other. And Elijah went before the people in verse 21 and says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Basically, let's not complicate the issue. <laughs> you follow God or you follow Baal. And the interesting thing, like I said, sometimes we can feel lonely when we stand for the Lord. Three times in that chapter, it says Elijah felt he was the only one left standing for God. And we can feel that way sometimes, right? Like everything's against us. We're the only ones trying to stand for the Lord. But God reminds him in 1 Kings 19, 18, he said, No, Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed, to Baal, not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So even though he felt alone, God said, no, there's 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed down to that false idol. So in a given moment or circumstance or location, you may feel, and it may be true, maybe in that particular circumstance, you're the only one standing for God. But remember, God always has a remnant of faithful people. There always exists. And remember, too, Hebrews 12 talks about the cloud of witnesses who are in heaven cheering us on, right? Run the race with endurance, because there's this heavenly witness that is cheering us on. 
So I just want to talk about a couple points of application. The first one is let God be God. This is more of a personal application to myself here. Um, but for those of us who love the Lord, and I, you know, I, I definitely love the Lord, I want my whole family to follow after him, sometimes I secretly have this thought like, if I could just do this or just do that, maybe I can guarantee that my children will choose the Lord and want to follow after him, right? So as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So I confess I want to control, I'm a bit of a control freak in general in my life. I want to control things, fix things, make sure things go the way I want. And this is sadly the case also in my children's spiritual lives. So I want to be able to follow a certain spiritual program, a way to disciple them, and boom, out pops six beautiful followers of the Lord, right? Doesn't work that way as much as sometimes we might like it to. So when I say let God be God, we need to distinguish what is God's role and what is our role in this process. So, as parents, our job is to set a godly example in all we do. And sometimes that includes asking forgiveness when we've blown it, right? It's our job to instruct our children in the ways of the Lord. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, as you walk, as you go about your day, that's our job, to introduce God and inject him into situations. And it's our job to pray for their hearts, that God would soften them and and be able to be led to the Lord. So that's our job. God's job is to move in their hearts and draw them to himself. He's the one who does the work of salvation and not us. So you want to let God be God and do his work in their lives. So we may not be the perfect home. (laughs) I know we're not. A home without problems or worries. But let there be no doubt in our kids' minds that our home is, at the very least, is one that aims to serve the Lord. Every decision we make, every crisis we face, every challenge that we have, we hope that they know that it is filtered through our love for Christ and our service to Christ. Do you remember the familiar adage, um, you can lead a horse to water, but you, you can't make them drink, right? So we can and we should lead our children to truth and God's word. That's our responsibility. And that goes for other people in our lives too. People that we are in close contact, we should lead them to the truth of God's word. But only God can open up their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit to drink from his living water, right? To me, this echoes Romans 12, 18. This is one of these verses I really love. So Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So this verse talks about reconciliation, and God's saying, do as much as you can to bring about reconciliation between two parties who are in conflict. So we can do our part, um, but we can't guarantee that reconciliation is going to happen. It's a two-way street, right? So the idea in Joshua 24, as far as let God be God, is as much as it depends on you kind of idea. As much as it depends on you, provide a godly environment so that your kids are instructed in the ways of the Lord. As much as it depends on you, make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel with people. Another example would be uh, the story of Daniel. And if you remember, in the very beginning of the book of Daniel, he resolved that he would not defile himself by eating the king's food, right? So he made a personal decision, a personal choice. A single person did this, Daniel, that he would not do this. So... But his resolve, his personal choice, 
enable the, the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to also consider that same choice, and they also chose for the Lord. So Daniel's decision didn't guarantee that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would follow him in that, but it provided an opportunity for them, and they, they decided for themselves. So for this point, I would say, so choose to follow God without reservation and entrust others around you to God. Follow after God the best you can and let God be God and work in the lives of those you love. The second point of application is what I'm calling stop, drop, and love up. So not stop, drop, and roll. This is just a way to help you remember. Stop, drop, and love up. Let me explain. So two times in Joshua 24, Joshua told them to throw away their foreign gods. Once was in verse 14, and once was later in 23. <clears throat> and as I explained earlier, these idols were likely, not, uh, were likely physical ones that were hiding in their homes. So it wasn't an overt idolatry where people were going to unauthorized places and making unauthorized sacrifices. It was this hidden thing where they were kind of secretly cherishing and even nourishing their dependence on these idols. It seems crazy to me that you would be attached to such idols after, God, after all God had done for them. One commentator put it this way, how astonishing is this, that after all God had done for them, all the miracles they had seen, there still should be found among them both idols and idolaters. So we come to what I think is a very troubling truth. Many times the problems of peace are greater than the problems of war. Let me say that again, because. At this point, the Israelites are living in a time of peace. Many times, the problems of peace are greater than the problems of war. So it's amazing to see how the command to get rid of the idols among you have been repeated generation after generation. Remember, we talked even back to the time of Abraham, at the time of, of, uh, of Jacob, even had to tell his wife Rachel to get rid of the foreign gods amongst them. It's what I find this is really interesting. Idolatry, do you know that's actually the number one problem that's mentioned in the Bible? There are over a thousand verses speaking of idolatry. There are more than 50 laws in the Torah directed against idolatry. And of the, uh, it was only one of four sins that, had, that was attached to the death penalty, idolatry. That's how serious it was. But we in modern times, who we think we have this superior intellect, right? Um, we often read about idolatry and we skip over it. We kind of dismiss it in our minds like it's antiquated or it's irrelevant in our own lives. But nothing could be farther from the truth. In our ladies' Bible study recently, I came across a uh, definition of idolatry, which I thought was very helpful. It says, when we take creative things and give them value, worth, authority, and praise that only the creator deserves. That's what idolatry is. Let me say that again. When we take creative things and give them value, worth, authority, and praise that only the creator deserves. So it comes to our application point. How do we weed out the idolatry in our lives? We talked about the stop, drop, and love up. So stop. We live at such a furious pace. Even just to take a few moments to kind of quiet our hearts before the Lord can be really challenging. I know it's challenging for me. It tells us in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Be still. Very hard for me. So we want to come before God with a heart to really hear what God wants to show us, to pay attention to those deep places inside of us that get very little attention, to take time to acknowledge that he is a great God and he is worthy of our love and devotion and service. So that's the stop part. 
The drop part would be drop to your knees, literally or figuratively in your hearts, and to pray and ask God to show you where the idols might be in your life. Psalm 139, 23 to 24 says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It basically says, God, we're asking God, show me my sin, and he will answer that prayer. Do you think he will not answer that prayer? <laughs> if we ask God to show us our sin, he will answer us if we come with a tender and humble heart. And the bold statement I want to make about idolatry today is, idolatry isn't just one issue, it is the issue. Behind every sin that we struggle with, there is an idol in our hearts that's winning the war. So here are some questions you could ask yourself that the Holy Spirit could use to maybe think through some of these things that, maybe, that are capturing your heart. Um, you might say, I struggle with being anxious and worried. Well, hmm, let me think about that. Why is that? Maybe because we make comfort and avoiding hardships our God. Maybe that's why we struggle with that. We might say, I struggle with contentment. Well, why is that? Maybe because we idolize money and the security it brings. Maybe we discover that we struggle with pride. Well, why is that? Well, probably because we idolize our own in intellect over God's ways. And I know for me, that's one of the, my biggest things is the pride thing, because I want to, like I said, I want to control things. So in essence, is pride. I have an idol in my heart that I know better than God, and I want to control things. So that's just some questions you can ask yourself to evaluate where you're at. So stop, drop to your knees and pray, and then love up. So once you identify what your idols might be, remember what Joshua told the people 20, in chapter 24, verse 23, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord. So there's the second step. Throw away the idols, but yield your heart to the Lord. So how can we render these idols powerless in our lives? So I want to just read a little bit. This one commentator put it so well, I, I'm only going to add up a little bit. Most of what he said was just amazing. But he said, the answer isn't always to remove the object of idolatry from our lives. Because let's be honest, family can be an idolatry, right? You can't just remove them from your life. Your job could be an, you know, an idol in your life. Can't always re remove that either. So the answer isn't always to remove the object of the idolatry from your life, to stop loving it, or even to love it less. But the answer isn't to love that less, but to love God more. We must allow ourselves to be filled with the fullness of God so that our hearts for him shoves everything else aside out of his presence, out of the God place in our hearts. We must allow God's magnificent beauty and glory to fill our hearts and minds. The only people whose hearts are truly free from idols are, the, are those who can honestly say, the Lord is all I need. He's my joy, my hope, my pursuit, my life, my all. When we let God be God, when we're completely satisfied in him, and when we completely embrace the salvation he offers, we won't go looking for things anywhere else. We'll have no need for a false God if we love God that much, right? When we are completely satisfied in him, we'll have no need to go looking elsewhere. My third point, and hopefully you'll walk away with this thought in mind as you go about your week, is go all in, it's worth it. This refers to both God and us. God is already all in with us, right? He loves us unconditionally, no matter, what, no matter what. And he's calling us that we should be all in for him. So how is God all in? As we talked about throughout the series, God is a promise keeper. 
In Joshua 23, 14, listen to this verse. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. He repeated it twice. God's promises. Not one has failed. So now Joshua can look back and say, yes, not one of God's promises have failed. He's all in for us. We need to be all in for him. Jesus makes it clear as well that he wants us to be all in for him. He wants nothing less than our whole hearts. He will not settle for us sharing our affections with others. And he said this in Revelation 13. Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16, to one of the early churches at the time. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Again, it's back to that clear choice. You cannot be in the middle. We cannot have mushy, half-hearted, indifferent, apathetic, or unenthusiastic faith about and in the Lord about who our hearts are devoted to. No milk toast Christians, right? God is calling us to choose to serve him and to hold fast to him. Joshua said in 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 8, hold fast to the Lord. And that means adhere to the Lord, embrace the Lord, lift by the things of the Lord and heed the Lord. So let me ask you a question. This is kind of our wrap-up time. Did you ever wonder if it's, all, if it's worth it? Is it worth it being all in for God? Is it worth it following God with my whole heart? Is it just too much to sacrifice? Are those who don't follow the Lord, do they have it better than I do? Now, Joshua would say, without a doubt, that it is worth it, right? At the beginning of Joshua, God told him, you follow me, follow after my, my law, be careful to do everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful, right? He was scared, but now he's at the end of his life looking back and saying, yes, God made me prosperous and successful because I stuck with him, and yes, it was worth it. And this is the whole reaping what you sow principle in a positive sense, right? He, he was reaping what he was sowing. He was faithful to God the whole, his whole life, and now he's seeing the fruits of what that faithfulness has brought. So let me ask you again. Have you ever been in a place where you question whether following God is worth it? When we see others around us who have no faith prosper, we think, is it worth it? When they appear to just be going, you know, one vacation after another, one enjoyment after another, is it worth it, God? When we look at our lives and they feel kind of out of order and chaotic and everybody else's lives seem to be in order, is it worth it? When we see the sacrifices we make for the Lord, is it worth it? In my own observations, I, you know, not very often, but occasionally I have this thought like, man, when I think about all the money we have given over all these years to various ministries and church, I could have used that for some other things. Was it worth it? All the time I have given to serve in different ministry capacities, when I had interest in doing other things, was that sacrifice worth it? Or how about those times when you're tired, feeling depleted, you don't want to come to the Lord's house to be encouraged by God's word and by fellowship, or by logging in online at home. You just kind of want to be done and have a break from God, right? We say, is it, is it worth doing those things? So I just want to point out Psalm 73. And if, if you have time this coming week, spend time really reading over this thoughtfully. But in Psalm 23, Asaph is the writer. And he had these same struggles he wrestled with. 
So we're just going to read uh, certain verses from this and kind of figure out, what did Asaph conclude? Is it worth it to follow God? Psalm 73, verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you take me into glory. Who am I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Sandy, if you could advance to um, verse uh, 13. Thank you. Okay. Um, so when Asaph initially saw the wicked, he pointed out, wow, they're joyful. They're wealthy. They're carefree. They're prosperous. They spurn God and his ways. They mock God and those who follow him, yet look how they're living. They look totally free of God's judgment. Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, right? Was it worth it? But then until, look at verse 17, until what? Until what? Until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. So Asaph went to God's house, which is a way to say that he entered God's presence. He was able to break out of these crazy emotions he was feeling and he remembered the truth that life is not really about what you're experiencing now. He, was, he remembered that what you sow now will reap a harvest later. This is the illustration, the kids might like this. Um, so imagine a man who goes to the top of a really tall skyscraper, right? And he just wants to fly. How cool would it be if he could just kind of fly like Superman, right? So this man goes and he jumps off. And then someone kind of pokes her head out of the window looking at them coming down, like, oh, how's it going? Oh, so far, so good, right? So he was probably doing really well until, <laughs> right? So sometimes when we, we look at those who follow the Lord, we think, man, everything's going so well for them, right? But we forget where they're heading, what the end is going to look like. There will be sacrifices to make as we choose to follow the Lord, but remember that even though faithfulness to the Lord will cost us greatly, unfaithfulness to the Lord will cost us everything. And the Lord, he's so good. He brings unexpected joys and blessings along the way as we walk in faith with him. Asaph, back in that psalm, pointed out the incredible things he gains by following the Lord. God's continual presence, God's guiding counsel, God's amazing strength, God as his refuge in hard times, and ultimately being brought into glory. Look at the comparison. So yes, Joshua and all the believers who have gone before us would affirm without a doubt that it is worth it to go all in for God. So I'm going to end today going back to my original illustration of a marriage renewal ceremony, okay, a vow renewal ceremony. In our case, when we renewed our wedding vows, um, anyway, anyway, when we renewed our wedding vows, we didn't do so because we were in crisis. 
But we did so because we were actually doing well, and we used it as an opportunity to reaffirm our commitment to each other. We're basically saying, we still choose each other over all others, and that it's worth it, and we're going to keep going, right? And so that could be like you today. Maybe you, you've been steadfast and faithful to God. This is a great day to say, I continue to choose you. You are still worth it. You are still the one. For others, a marriage vow renewal ceremony can be so significant for those who have just been crushed by the heaviness of a broken marriage. There are people, I've read stories online, that have come to the brink of divorce, and God just does amazing, miraculous things to restore the relationship, and they, they ended up having a marriage vow renewal ceremony because they say, we want to make the commitment over again in front of all these people that this is what we are choosing to do. So the spiritual analogy is, are you someone who have maybe once made a commitment to the Lord, but you have strayed from him? Over time, you have drifted away from him. Just remember, God is such a forgiving and gracious God. He can completely restore your relationship with him, just like he has restored many broken marriages. So maybe it's time you've had a vow renewal ceremony with the Lord, and you told him, yes, he is worth following from this day forward. For others here, in a spiritual sense, maybe you've never been married before. Maybe, that is, you've never made a definitive, unwavering commitment to follow the Lord, to place your faith in Jesus and receive the free gift of life that he gives us, to be all in for God. As Joshua said, the choice is yours and the choice is now. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, but after for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So now we're at the end of the book of Joshua. The Israelites are settled in the promised land. We all know what's coming for them, right? But they don't. They're, they're thinking, oh, everything's peace, everything's divided up. They don't know what's in store for them. But Joshua says, choose God going forward, which is essentially choosing life over death. So Sandy, if you could go back to that last verse. I wanted to end with a verse which very much mirrors Joshua's farewell address. Moses, before he died, he gave his own farewell address. And he said some similar things to the Israelites, you know, about 50 years prior to this, that Joshua is saying now. So let's, let's end with this thought and listen for some key words that stand out, that matches Joshua's message. So in Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 to 20, again, this is Moses speaking, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. Let's take a minute to pray before our final song. Dear Heavenly Father, you are such an amazing, kind, gracious and loving Father. It makes no logical sense why there are times when we turn our back on you and choose to follow after other things, have our hearts torn between choices when the choice should be clear and obvious, Lord. Work in us, Father, today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to remember and to live by the truth that you are worth it. You are all in for us. Help us to be all in for you. And I pray for those who have never made that commitment that they would choose to do so, that they would know that is a life full of riches and blessings far beyond anything that a non-believer would experience, Lord. So help us to remember that, Lord, and thank you that you are our living hope. Amen.